get uh, going this morning, I want to do just a little small survey. Um, what, uh, those of you who bring a Bible with you and follow along, what uh, version of the Bible, how many of you uh, bring with you an NIV? How many King James? How many New King James? How many ESV? Okay, good. I'm glad you bring your Bibles with you. Um, but I say all that to say that as I begin the next preaching series, I'm going to begin reading from the NASB. And the reason for that is um, it is a closer word-for-word translation. And um, it actually uh, helps me take a shortcut a little bit in my study um, in that uh, I can, if I have a, a, a phrasing or a sentence structure that is, uh, I need to, more clarity on how the Greek forms that sentence, the NASB gives me a little shortcut into how that happens. So um, it reads well. So uh, I just want to let you know that um, ahead of time. And it doesn't matter what version you bring here, uh, because the Word of God is the Word of God. It says what it says. So the best Bible you can have is the one you will read, right? Uh, there's a couple of exceptions to that on the far extreme right end of the, of the scale are those that are uh, interpretive or... Um, they take some leaps to make application within the text itself that maybe might not be there. So, um, But if you're reading that Bible, read it and continue to read it. Um, as we sang, as we think about uh, the Word of God that we are going to listen to and, and, and hopefully that we will uh, obey this morning, we sing this praise this morning that in every season... Jesus is the anchor of our soul. And so if you would um, open your Bible to chapter 18 of the book of Acts, um, we will consider this morning verses 12 through uh, 28. Um, we'll first seek the Lord in prayer, uh, then we'll read the text under examination, and then we'll dissect the passage, making some application uh, as we go. I, I did intend, of course, last week to attempt to try to preach the whole chapter. And of course, as you saw when I got here, I could not do that. It was too much. Um, and so I hope that you will be patient with me because as, as, as I will begin preaching this passage this morning, it will sound a little bit like I'm re-preaching last week's sermon, but it will, to get the whole context of the whole thing, um, uh, I think we need that. So, um, would you uh, pray with me this morning? Uh, gracious Father in heaven, prepare us to hear and to receive your word this morning. We ask for your grace to be upon us as we engage in our occupation as disciples. We are those who want as our primary occupation to be disciples who make disciples, and we do so through trials and through adversity. We ask that you would preserve us by grace through partnerships in the body, Strengthen us by grace according to your word. Give us, Lord, models to follow, faithful servants to imitate. Give us grace to be examples in our own lives that we are worthy of imitation. Make us people graciously endowed with a teachable spirit. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you are able... Would you stand for the reading of the infallible and errant word of God from Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 12. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. 
And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centuria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is God's word. Y'all may be seated. So as I opened last week, and by way of reminder, a recurring theme of the book of Acts has been the Great Commission in Action. And I put it another way, that the Holy Spirit empowered witness of Jesus Christ through the apostles was given to the church, and it became and is still the primary purpose and occupation of everyone who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. I said that to love God is to be faithful, a faithful witness as a Christian's primary occupation. The Great Commission then is the primary occupation of every disciple of Jesus Christ. This duty was given to you by the one who loved you and freed you from your sin. This is to be our preoccupation. All of our work, all of our effort, all of our successes, all of our trials are a work, a work of God's preserving grace, such that we can only glorify God in our work. I would remind you of Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, it is God's grace at work in those who are called according to his purpose to preserve us through trial, to teach us according to his word. He sends us by grace the help of fellow co-laborers. He gives us examples to imitate. It is grace that corrects us. It is grace that grows us. Our work is all of grace. He who began a good work in you will perfect it to the end, Philippians 1, 6 says. Therein there is the promise of what God has started in us, the work, and I want us to get this, the work that he has started in our soul, he intends to finish. That which he started in your soul, he intends to finish. The work of transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ will be finished. It will be finished because it is not you doing it. It is God, by his grace, through his power, through his strength, working in us that will bring us all the way to the end. This is the doctrine of grace, which states that those who are effectually called of God will persevere in the faith. They will continue to remain in Christ clear to the end. R.C. Sproul says that that doctrine of perseverance of the saints can be misleading if we do not understand that it's God's grace that preserves the believer to remain in faith to the end. Sometimes we can think about this perseverance of the saints is to white-knuckle it and to strengthen yourself and to all of that, right? And there is some of that. We are to be working toward that end, our expected end. But we must couch that and understand that that is in God's work in us. That it is he who is working in us. 
It is he who preserves us all the way to the end, even through our failures. Quote, uh, R.C. Sproul says, I believe, of course, that saints do persevere in the faith, that those who have been effectually called by God and reborn in the power of the Holy Spirit, they do endure to the end. They do persevere, but not simply because they're so diligent in making use of the mercies of God. The only reason uh, we can give for why we continue in the faith until the last day is not because we have persevered so much, but because we have been preserved. So that's the idea. We've been preserved in soul by God. It is his work in us. So I want to give us a little context uh, introduction and Again, a lot from, uh, uh, from Acts uh, 1 through 11, uh, 18, 1 through 11. Last week, uh, Paul has come to Corinth from Athens. Remember, in 1 Corinthians 2, it says that I was with you in weakness and in much fear and in trembling. Paul's arrival at Corinth, Corinth comes as he has left a place where the reception was cold and the possibility of doing good work to him seemed hopeless. Paul needed encouragement that he might press on in his great commission work. And we saw that God provided so in many, many ways. Paul, having entered Corinth in weakness and fear and much trembling, has received a bit of encouragement from Aquila and Priscilla, partners in commerce, partners in Christian fellowship. A second bit of uh, encouragement comes upon the, the arrival of his partners from um, in the gospel, Silas and Timothy. They bring with him gifts from the church. Paul is additionally encouraged from a Gentile neighbor and a ruler of the synagogue. Titius Justice receives Paul into his home. Uh, even though next door he was meeting with opposition, he had one who brought him into his home right next door. Um, Paul could be encouraged that although a great number of his kinsmen had rejected Christ, one of the leading men of the synagogue received the gospel. He and his whole family were converted and the greatest encouragement comes, as we saw in verse 11, directly from the Lord. Well, actually in verses 9 through 11, the Lord encourages Paul to continue in his work with boldness and without fear. His commission is renewed and his charge to preach the gospel is commanded. And the Lord promises his grace will preserve him. The Lord be with you, Paul, you mighty man of valor. He promises that grace will be his protector. The Lord promises his grace will preserve him. Whatever trouble may come to you, it will not be ultimate. Preserving grace, you see, doesn't promise that there are no trials. Sometimes we think that in our Christian life, right, because we're following Jesus, that then we are somehow exempt from trials, that we will somehow always get an escape from trouble. Well, there's a promise. There's a promise we saw last week, is that when these trials come, Jesus will be with you. Jesus will always be with you. Jesus will bring you through it, and you will not be destroyed. That is, you will not be ultimately left out of the kingdom. You see, it is God who is preserving your soul. Like, it's a red-letter day when you get this. When you really get this in yourself, it took me years to get this in my own self. Is that God really saves. No, 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 you got to get this. Like, it's very important. That when God converts the heart of stone to a heart of flesh to believe in him, it never, ever returns void. It doesn't change. It is he does all of the work in us that you are as you are saved. You are completely saved, entirely saved. Your soul has been made uh, new. You are a new person, a new creation. He has actually done a work in you. You're saved forever. You've got to get it. You've got to get that, brothers because and sisters, because here's the thing. You're going to fail, and the enemy is going to say to you, are you really a Christian? How many times have you messed up with other people in the world? I have, and I mess up with them. And they say things like this, and you call yourself a Christian. As a matter of fact, I do. It's not he, it's not me who calls myself a Christian. It is Christ who says I'm his. And yeah, I put a blemish on him from time to time. 
But that says nothing about him. It says everything about me. It says everything about my need for his grace and his mercy. It says everything about what he died to give me. Right? It says all of that. The Lord promises that grace will preserve us and that whatever trouble comes, it will not be our ultimate end, that our soul is secure, even through trial. Jesus promises he will be with us, that he will take us through it, and that we will not be destroyed and we will not be left out of the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 7 through 11 reminds us of this preserving grace through trial. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. See, we see the proof of God's preserving grace immediately following the encouragement that Paul gets from the vision of Christ that he gets in verses 9 through 11. Immediately, Paul gets some encouragement that no harm ultimately would come to him, even though he's immediately in trial. See, isn't that, isn't that um, amazing, right? This is what the, the world would look at this passage and say, he promised you no harm. And yet, upon the end of that sentence, we get verse 12. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united tack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Paul received encouragement from the Lord that ultimate harm would not come to him. The phrase in verse 10 reads, no man will attack you in order to harm you. Interpretively, let's, let's think about this. We should read this, that though attacks and trials will come, they will not overtake you. Live without fear is the command. Live without fear and boldly continue to speak of Christ freely. As we just saw from 2 Corinthians, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. In this section, we have an account of a great disturbance to the work, but no great harm comes to Paul. I would ask us this as way of application this morning. Um, Christian, what holds you back from obedience to the command of the one who loved you and set you free? What holds you back from obeying his command to make disciples? Is it the fear of man? I think it often is for me. Charles Spurgeon says, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you're worse than he thinks you to be. The gospel we, pre we preach is not pleasant. It's not pleasant to man. Why is it not pleasant? Because it crushes pride. The gospel is a pride-crushing truth. It crushes pride. Galatians 1.10 says, For now am I seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Even Jesus tells us, have no fear of them, for there is nothing covered that will, that will be, not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy, destroy both soul and body in hell. Further, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. 
Isaiah even tells us this. We should have no fear of man. No weapon that is fa fashioned against you shall succeed. Isaiah 54, 17. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So whatever form persecution comes, it cannot steal from us our salvation. It cannot steal your soul. Though it may destroy you physically, I don't want you to be unaware that the proclamation of the gospel, because it is a pride-crushing truth, when it's met with opposition, may destroy you physically. But your salvation is secure. Your place with Christ is forever. That's the truth for us to hang on to. It's the truth that spurs us on to not fear man. But God, by His grace, is holding us safely and securely in the finished work of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Now, of course, you know the gospel, as I said, is offensive because it crushes pride. Pride. It's especially offensive to the religious person who's very legalistic. And so the Jews here in this passage, they're united in their violent opposition to Paul and the gospel. And they, hear, they hurry Paul violently to the judgment seat. When we look at uh, verse 13, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. This is their accusation. Their accusation is that Paul is persuading, persuading these people to worship God contrary to the prescription that the law says. Well, what laws? What laws are they accusing him of? The laws that pertain to temple worship, well, they couldn't be observed in Corinth. No temple, no requirement. Further, there was no part of the synagogue worship which Paul contradicted. But what is their quarrel, ultimately? Their quarrel is this, that Paul rightly proclaims this, proper worship is in spirit and in truth. And the scripture declares that only in Christ Jesus can one worship God in spirit and in truth? And here's Paul ready to give his defense. He's about to give his defense of himself before the tribunal and the grace of God intervenes for him. Galileo, Galileo interrupts his speech. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have no reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Grace is our defense. But I want us to also, when we look at this passage, when we think about one of the things we need to think about in our study of Scripture is to not be a reductionist in our application. To be a reductionist is to wrongly conclude that in a trial, we need not prepare to defend the faith. We need not reduce this passage to say that God will always intervene on our behalf in the middle of trial. He may want to take us all the way through it. Some, sometimes we can take a scripture like this and reduce it to something and say, see, God will always deliver you from the time of trial. We cannot reduce the scripture to that. It, it is a description of God's grace. It is an occasion in which God graciously intervened, intervened. But it's not a prescription. It's a description, but not a prescription that in every trial we will escape. The point I want to make about this is that by grace, the Lord is with you and preserving you in salvation, whether or not you escape the trial and trouble you're in. God is always preserving us in trial, in trouble. Sometimes he delivers us immediately from those trials and troubles, and sometimes he does not. But it doesn't change the fact that God, by his grace, is preserving us in all of it and through it. And the application then, as we look at this passage, is fear not. Fear not. The Lord is with you, you valiant disciple of Jesus Christ. Fear not. Don't be silent in proclaiming the gospel. The Lord is with you to the end of the age because you are a favored one of God. 
Paul is interrupted by Galileo. Galileo here, he was known in that time. He had this moniker that he went by that people called him. They called him Sweet Galileo. He was called a wonderful man, a man of great temper. And as we look at this passage again, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Galileo dismisses the case. Though he was ready, he was ready to be a judge if it was a matter that was in his purview. If it was to settle a wrong done to another person or some sort of violence or vicious crime, he was ready to do his duty as the magistrate. But he refused to be a tool, to be a tool in the hands of the Jews to bring malice to Paul. If he has violated your religious laws, he says, then you judge him. In other words, I like to say this a lot, not my circus, not my monkey. Is basically what he's saying. This is not in my pur- purview. This is not, this is not my circus. This is not my monkey. This is yours. This is yours to deal with. We can learn something from Galileo's stance positively. We not, we ought not to get involved in disputes with others concerning things which we don't have enough knowledge or training to do. We need to be slow to give advice when our education or our experience is lacking. Often, this happens in my ministry. It's happened between my brother here. Uh, at times, we come, we'll discuss deep things, troubling things. And I will just often admit, I'm out of my depths here. I've come to the end of what I can understand and, and do. I'll give you what I think. But trust this, that I don't know. I have the answers that the Lord seems to give, but sometimes there's mysteries that we don't get in the Scripture. There's things that I can't answer by giving just a word from from the Lord. I'm out of my depths. This is something that can only be revealed to us in prayer. This is something that only the Holy Spirit can teach us. This is not something I can do. It's out of my purview. It's I'm, I'm out of my depths. We can learn also what not to do from observing Galileo in verse 17. In verse 17, they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. The Jewish leaders take their vengeance out on Sosthenes for joining Paul. Galileo was unconcerned. We can learn something that we ought not to do. We, although we ought to stay in our lane, as it were, and we ought to be slow to give advice when we're out of our depths. We must never turn a blind eye to injustice. We become guilty of the injustice if we idly decide that I'd rather not get involved. Certainly the beating of Sosthenes was in his purview. He was a judge and a magistrate, and it was wrong. But he seemed, and he was, it says, he paid no attention to this. I think the King James Version says he was unconcerned, unconcerned, paid no mind to it. And he would say kind of, this is not my fight. Yes, it is. Injustice is your fight. Injustice is all of our fight, right? Paul's falsely accused and he's violently taken. But as we see in this passage, he is preserved by God's grace through Galileo's refusal to hear the matter. Now we see another bit of encouragement that God's grace is with us and he's with us through partnerships. He's with us through partnerships. Look at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centuria, he had his hair cut for he was under a vow. And now they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And then he set sail for Ephesus. God demonstrates his preserving grace and his intervening grace toward Paul. He forges new partners in the gospel. The work continues. 
When he first gathered, they were partners in commerce. They had fellowship. They had Christian fellowship. And now as Paul is moving on to the third journey, he has God by his grace after the trial has given him new partners, new partners in the gospel, new partners to move it, move the gospel forward. The journey begins. Priscilla and Aquila partner with him in Syria. They remain in Ephesus there to establish the church. Paul begins the mission the same as always, though, doesn't he? He brings the gospel to the synagogue, to his brethren and to those who fear God. And they have some acquaintance with the scriptures. I think we ought to think about this for application as we think about in our great commission work, we should notice the habit of Paul. He doesn't kick doors open. He goes to places where there might be an open door, where there's a possibility that a door would be open. These who are familiar with the scriptures, right? These who are God-fearers. And another thing is Paul doesn't withhold the gospel to the Jews at Ephesus, does he? He certainly could have said this whole people group is accountable for what the people in Corinth did to me. He could have written them off. All of you are the same. Categorizing, uh, putting them in a category. They're unworthy of me preaching the gospel because their kind has treated me poorly. We can do that often in our ministry, right? As we think about you know, people who have rejected us, certain types of people maybe who have rejected us, and then we just close our mouths when we're around people who are like them. And we say they're unworthy of it because this person didn't receive it, and they're just like them, right? Well, Paul here, he doesn't withhold the gospel to the Jews at Ephesus because of the poor actions of Jews at Corinth. We cannot, in our own Great Commission work, dismiss categories of people because of others who are like them others who are of ill character. We can't just assume that. We can't just assume that because they're, they live in this neck of the woods and this person rejected me, then all of their neighbors are no good too. Just because these one folks acted ill towards me. As we look at verse 20 and 21 again, when they asked him to stay for a little longer, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. I want to notice here in these two verses that Paul knows that grace comes to him by the will of God. Those who are preserved by grace and long to stay in the power of grace, what do they do? They submit themselves to the will of God. They seek to do and to know the will of God. Jesus said in John chapter 4 that his food, his sustenance, came from doing the will of the Father. One of the things that is a big question for us, and I, I've heard it like as I talk with, with people here in the church, um, when we think about uh, these things and we're, we have these tough decisions to make, a lot of times people will ask me, how can I know if I am in the will of God? How can I know? Because choice A seems good and choice B seems good. How can I know if I am in the will of God? Well, we can know one thing for certain. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So I would ask that if you have a choice to make, choice A and choice B, in either choice, do you have joy? Do you have joy in that circumstance, knowing that the Lord is with you? Are you thankful for your salvation in the darkest of troubles? If you can affirm that, then you are in the will of God. If you have thankfulness and joy, you are in the will of God. Well, what about tough decisions? I think we ask this of ourselves. What will my action produce? And where does it come from? And I, I mean that in, in this sense, in 1 Thessalonians 1. Does it promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith? 
The aim of our charge is love uh, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In tough decisions, Christians in the will of God, those who are preserved by grace, are motivated by faithfully stewarding their own salvation and the right application of the gospel. Am I faithful in stewarding the gospel? Does this steward the gospel well? Does this steward my salvation well? And is the decision I'm about to make loving? Is it loving? Are my motives pure? Then I have to ask myself this question. If I choose A or I choose B, am I just being selfish? Because I like A a lot. A is the one I like. B might be the will of God. But because I like A in my own human self, right? This happens a lot. Because I like A, I then say, that's the will of God because I like A. I like A a lot. Well, that am I being selfish in that choice? Or is B really what serves God best? What serves the gospel best? What stewards that best? So in those tough de- decisions, we might ask those questions. One of, one of the questions that, that I had, especially during COVID, we had some, some really tough decisions to make, right? And people had tough decisions to make. Um, I had a, a, a man come to me who was um, a friend who was talking about um, his job and that if he didn't take a shot, they were going to fire him. And he said, I don't know if I should go along to keep my job or uh, should I stand on my conviction and not get a shot? So I asked him this. In either choice, do you have a clear conscience before God that you're being faithful to him? And he's like, what? I said, can you be faithful to God and have a clear conscience before him and not take the shot? Or can you take the shot and still have a clear conscience before God? That, that, there's your choices. Now, see, that's not much of an answer, is it? Uh, I didn't give him the, this is what you ought to do. Because that I don't know, right? Those are areas where conscience and conviction rule, where they work. These are tough decisions. And sometimes in our decision-making, whether we're in the will of God or not, uh, the answer is often not either or. It's both and. You can do either. Is your conscience clear before God, though? That's the question. Can you do it with a clear conscience? Can you know that you're serving God best in doing this? That becomes our decision. Well, another way, of course, we see in this passage that I want us to see is that God not only only, uh, preserves us and gives us grace by giving us new partners, by uh, intervening for us at times, He also um, strengthens us and strengthens the church by His word. When He landed at Caesarea, He went up and He greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. Paul strengthens the churches. He gives them encouragement to continue in the gospel. It says uh, in the King James Version, he saluted them. This is communicated to to them in this way. He, He says, the Lord is doing a good work in you. I want to encourage you with the work that God is already doing in you. This is what the Lord has done for you. And I was thinking about our church, right? And praying through this uh, um, yesterday morning. And I thought, man, I, I should take a moment to just encourage my brothers and sisters here. Because oftentimes, you know, when I'm up here preaching, right? I'm talking about what we're not doing and what we need to be doing better. Right? I still mean those things. I'm not taking that away. I still mean those things. But I also thought, you know what? Sometimes we need 
to just know that God is doing good work in us, right? That in this church, I see a dedicated bunch of brothers and sisters who really care for one another, who care for our personal needs amongst each other. And there are some in here, I won't pick on my brother Tyler too much, but Tyler and, uh, and Joe, some months ago, there was falsehood coming into our church and it came into our, uh, in our Bible study into their credit. These men know the truth well enough to know that is false. And they called it for what it was immediately. We ought to be encouraged by that. That is a work that the Lord is doing in you. And so I want you to be encouraged by that. It was, it was immediately recognized and it was soundly rebuked. And so I guess what I want to say to you guys is press on. Press on in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the last section here, I want to look at Apollos and what a great example he is for us. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Stop there for a minute. It's, it's a great grace that God gives us examples to follow, isn't it? Christian men and women who are sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ, who you and I can learn from and partner with in our occupation as disciples of Jesus Christ. Apollos was such a man that we could follow, that we could see his example. He was eloquent in speech, a man who knew the word of God. He was a man of boldness, a man who could accurately divide the word of God. Now, I look at this and I go, you and I, we may not be eloquent in our speech but we can encourage to follow Paul's example of being a person who is well acquainted with the scriptures. Any of us can follow his example and be well acquainted with the scriptures, can't we? We may not be able to uh, speak with the same eloquence as he, but we can be so acquainted with, this, with the scriptures and we can have the same Holy Spirit in us to give us boldness to speak the truth as we understand it. We can know the gospel by study. We can know the gospel by practical experience such that we can accurately declare that Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the way and it is, and we can do so in such a way that we are compelling. We don't need to be, maybe have the gifting of Apollos in his eloquent speech. We should not think that uh, we cannot be used of God because we lack, we lack Apollos' gift of eloquence. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We discount ourselves because we see somebody do it well, a good example, and we say, I can't do that, so therefore I can't do it at all. But we can take from, from, from Apollos' character, his nature, some things that we can emulate, things that we can do. We can understand the Scriptures. We can be instructed in the way of the Lord and know. We can, ha- we can do all of those things. We can be those who have been given the boldness of the Holy Spirit to speak them. Moses lacked the gift of speech, didn't he? But he was used mightily in delivering his people from Egypt. God may be calling one of you who might be slow in speech. He might be calling one of you to call your neighbor out of sin and into the kingdom. You don't have to be eloquent to do that. You have to understand the scripture. You have to understand the gospel by matter of practice. In fact, I don't say that he just may be calling you. He is calling you. It is your duty, brothers and sisters, to go and make disciples, teaching people to observe all that Jesus has commanded. And I would say this as an encouragement. If you don't know everything, that would be this whole room. If you don't know everything, when you're witnessing to your neighbor, tell them what you do know. Tell them what you do know. I don't know that, but I do know this. I don't have the answer to your questions, but I know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I don't have your answer to every theological question you might come up with. I might be well-versed in the Scriptures, but I, 
I, I may not know the answer to your specific question, but I, t- I will tell you this, that there is no way to be right with God except Jesus Christ and Him crucified for your sin. I know that there's no way that you will enter the kingdom of God lest you repent and believe. I know there's no other way. So if I don't know everything, I will tell you what I know. Here's what I know is the truth. Here's what I know. So don't worry that you don't have the education of a, of a deep scholar like Apollos or like Paul. Tell them what you know. And if you know that you're lacking some knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures, then guess what? you got all the time and freedom in this nation to open up your Bible and read it. You have brothers and sisters in the church to sit with, to disciple with, to pour into you, to you pour into them. You have all the resources available to you to grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that, again, this is an admonition, not for just this church, but all churches uh, around us, is that we don't have uh, a lot of Bible open discipleship relationships. We have good relationships. We love each other. We care for each other. We do for one another. And we might even meet together. But I think unless we meet together with the Scriptures open to one another, uh, there's just a piece that's missing. There's a piece that is missing in our growth in Jesus Christ. So let's look uh, a little closer at the second half of, of this section. Um, he spoke and taught accurately concerning things of Jesus, though he only knew of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. When my son first started working, he was about 16, and we were discussing discussing a position that he was interviewing for. And he asked me, he says, Dad, do you think I can handle the job? And I told him, well, you have two abilities that are going for you. Availability and teachability. If you show up when you're called and you listen with the point of learning, you will handle that job just fine. For me, the most admirable quality of Apollos for us to follow in this passage is his teachability. He was bold in what he knew. He was bold in what he knew, and yet he was humble. He was humble enough to learn, open to the grace of God to teach him through others. God in his grace sends us encouragement to remain faithful in our call to make disciples. By grace, he gives us examples to follow. And the word that escaped me last Sunday, as I was trying to think of it, is the word exhortation. Exhortation is an encouragement, isn't it? It is the kick in the pants rather than the arm around the side. It is, here's what you don't know, brother. Will you listen? Do you have ears to hear? Are you humble enough to take correction? And here we see this most admirable quality, I think, of Apollos is that he was teachable. He was teachable, open to God's gracious exhortation from his fellow believers. And he grew in grace. As we see at the end of this passage, he was able to help uh, greatly at people, greatly to help and encourage believers. He was empowered by grace to accurately demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ from the Scripture more fully. He was a smart and a learned man. He was eloquent in speech and yet humble enough to be teachable. It is God who is at work in us to, by grace, preserve us through trial. It is God in his grace who provides us partners in trial, partners in grace to encourage us. It is 
God who has placed us in our temporal work, whatever that might be, uh, that he might use you and your work for, for your ultimate duty, which is to make disciples. God in his grace gives us examples to follow. God has sent to us disciples who sit across the aisle from you, those who would grace, graciously encourage you in your work, those who might exhort you to continued growth in grace. God in his grace promises that in your weakness, he will provide strength. The Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I would say this to us, don't be held back by your weaknesses. Don't let fear of man prevent obedience. My friends, do not let those who kill the body, and after that they have nothing more that they can do. Don't let fear grip us. The Great Commission is our primary primary occupation as a disciple of Jesus. And I will remind us again that this duty was given to you by the one who loved you and freed you from your sin. Don't be consumed with the cares of this life such that you're mired with many things. When we do that, we have rendered ourselves unavailable. You're God's ambassadors. He has given you the duty in 2 Corinthians 5. You are his ambassadors. It says that he has given you the words of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation. You have the tools to do the job that God has called you to, that God has freed you from your sins to do. He, he, you have those skills, and then you have these two skills, the same skills that I told my son Dylan. You can be successful in your great commission work if you're available and if you're teachable. So as we end, I will ask, you this. Are you available? Are you teachable?